Welcome, everybody. I'm, I'm very pleased and honored to be able to chair this inaugural lecture tonight. Before we, we start, I would like to mention a few practical things. One has to do with the fact that uh, this uh, inaugural lecture is part of the Euro Crisis LSE lecture series. As you know, there is a Euro Crisis, and uh, we have a series of lectures to think about this crisis. And this lecture is one of them. And then a second point that I want to mention is about Twitter. Um, so for those of you who are uh, Twittering, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Hobalt. Before I give the floor to Peter Sutherland, let me say just a few things um, and, and express my, my happiness to, to be sitting here Tonight and last week, I was sitting on the other side giving my inaugural lecture, and I must say I feel so much happier now. <laughs> but not only because it's so much more comfortable, but also because I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to chair this meeting uh, for um, Sarah, um, for which I have such an admiration. Um, she has achieved so much already at her young age, um, and, and I must admit that at uh, her age, when I had her age, I was certainly not as successful as she has been up to now. But I will leave uh, Peter Sutherland to uh, introduce Sarah, because as you know, Sarah is uh, Peter Sutherland's <coughs> chair um, at the European institution, so there is no other person more qualified to give such an introduction. Peter, you have the floor. Well, let me say that this is a privilege as well as a delight to introduce Sarah to you. Many of you know her background and her academic achievement, Oxford and Michigan, the prizes that she has won, the awards that she brings with her to this, uni this university. I think she is an enormous benefit to LSE. Uh, her area of speciality is particularly focused, and indeed she will be speaking this evening, on the whole issue of public opinion formation of public opinion in Europe. And when one talks about a role in regard to European institutions, this whole issue of the democratic deficit, the connection between peoples and the centralizing, allegedly centralizing forces of the European Union is a very topical one. It's particularly topical in the United Kingdom looking through the years at Eurobarometer polls, or even more recent polls, the one in November in, in, in uh, the Observer, as an example, where we were told that 58% of the British population would vote against remaining in the European Union, is a startling testimony to the marginalization in many ways that the European project has achieved in Great Britain. It's terribly worrying for those of us who believe not merely in the nobility of the idea 
of European integration, but the importance of European integration from every aspect, and I include in that from the moral aspect to the economic aspect. So, as we face into an uncertain time in the United Kingdom, with a great deal of difficulties already evident in the debate as a result of the misleading information that is being put out as the potential options that are open to the United Kingdom in the future, withdrawing from major policy areas as if that were a possibility, which it isn't, the possibility of reshaping a relationship with the European Union whilst remaining within it, which again does not exist, the shaping of public opinion and the recognition of the realities of public opinion where it is become more and more important. And the subject which we will hear this evening, uh, blaming Europe, citizens, government, and the media, uh, is absolutely on the point, on the button of popular debate in, in the United Kingdom. And therefore, it gives me great pleasure to ask Sarah to deliver her uh, inaugural lecture. I'm very proud to be associated with her and to have her, as I said at the outset, in LSE, playing, I hope, an increasingly important role in developing thinking about the European Union, thinking which, in many respects, in Britain, is lamentably, lamentably behind the times and the realities of the world in which I hope and believe we should live. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter, Peter Sullivan, for those wise words. And thank you also to Paul for his kind introduction. It's a great honor for me personally to uh, hold a chair with the name of Sutherland and also, of course, a, a great responsibility. And it's a great honor for me to be here today and, and be holding this inaugural lecture. Uh, I'll also say that um, it's quite exciting to be at an event with a, with a hashtag associated with my name. And uh, I think uh, it's certainly the first time for me, and it's one of a the many things that coming from first University of Cambridge and University of Oxford to the LSE where I feel like in many ways I've entered a new century. So, uh, so that's, also, that's also exciting. So um, to start, see, it all works. So this is, of course, you'll see the name of the chair is European Institutions, but what I won't be doing tonight is to give a very detailed account of of European institutions or recent institutional developments. Instead, what I'll be focusing on is what has been my key interest for the last decade, namely citizens and how they perceive these institutions, the relationship between citizens and European institutions, and the electoral democratic processes that bind them. And I think at this very moment in history, with the crisis in Europe that's unfolding before our eyes, it shows that it's more important than ever perhaps to consider citizens and to consider the legitimacy of the European Union institutions. We often talk about the crisis as an economic crisis, as a euro crisis associated with the currency, but it is of course a very political crisis. 
And I think if you contrast it with earlier crises of the European Union, so the empty chair crisis in the mid-60s or the Eurosclerosis crisis in the late 70s, what makes this different is that it's played out not only in the corridors of powers but also on the streets of Europe, just to remind you of that fact. And that also that ordinary citizens are not only looking to their governments for someone to blame, but also at the institutions of the EU when they're looking for the culprit of this crisis. So that raises the fundamental question, which is the question of this lecture, so who's to blame, or rather, how do citizens assign blame and who do they hold to account for what's going on now and in general in European politics? So, to give you an example, if we imagine a Spanish voter who has just lost her job and have very little prospect of finding a new one, and who knows that some of the austerity measures that are going on are partly imposed by, by the EU and that the crippling debt of Spain is associated with being a member of the Eurozone. Who does, the, who does she look to, to blame, to, for blame for this, what's going on? And who does she hold to account? You know, how can she express that anger or that dissatisfaction? So that's really the starting point for the three questions that I will be addressing tonight. Firstly, how do citizens assign blame in the EU? Secondly, what about the media and governments? Do they engage in a blame game? And finally, can citizens hold EU institutions to account for the policy outcomes? So uh, rather than having you sort of sit at the edge of your seats waiting anxiously for the answers, I'll just give you a little preview. Um, so firstly, in terms of how citizens assign blame, what we, what we find in our research is that it's as much determined by their attitudes or their pre-existing attitudes about the EU as it is of the institutional reality. So if you're Eurosceptic, you're likely to think the EU is to blame whether that's right or wrong. Secondly, we find that actually the media in Europe in general and national governments engage a lot less in the blame game than we might think. And what about accountability in the EU? Well, even if citizens can make sense of this complex structure of multi-level governments, that doesn't mean that the electoral democratic processes in the EU allows them to hold the EU to account. So in order to substantiate these conclusions, I'm going to be relying on a great deal of evidence. I'll try and make it as non-technical as possible. Um, survey data from mainly a sort of a large survey of 27,000 respondents conducted in 2009 specifically to look at these questions of attribution of responsibility and also a media study at the same time looking at how the media uh, talks about the EU and the extent it talks about other policy areas and how it assigns responsibility. Uh, we'll also be relying on experimental evidence and finally a study of governments in the context of this crisis and how they've talked about the crisis in the EU. And therefore, just some brief acknowledgements I know to give in that this has, of course, been costly and I haven't done it all myself. Um, so uh, the European Commission and the Economic and Social Research Council has funded a lot of this and it's been conducted together with numerous collaborators but mainly James Tilley at the University of Oxford who is also here tonight. So thank you to them. Um, but let me start by 
looking first at the question of why we should care about attribution of responsibility. So why do we care beyond it providing sort of good material for sun headlines when we think about blaming the EU? Well, there are more fundamental reasons that we should care. And I'll take this quote from Bertrand Russell as a starting point, namely democracy is the process by which people choose the man who will get the blame. In other words, electoral democracy is very much about attribution of blame or attribution of responsibility. It's very much the process by which elections are sanctioning mechanisms where voters have the opportunity to look at their governors and see have they done a good job and then give them another term in office or have they done a bad job and then throw them out. But as I also show here in this uh, simple sketch, that depends on them being able to assign responsibility for these policy outcomes. In a simple world where we have a simple one-party government that has a majority and can call the shots on everything, we can just simply say, well, fine, if they've done a bad job, we're going to vote them out of office, and there's a clear alternative majority that can come in instead, and it's that simple. It also should incentivize them to do a better job when they're in office. However, that's, of course, not the world we tend to live in. In many European countries and outside Europe, we have coalition governments, we have minority governments, we have legislators that put pressure and checks and balances and executives and so on. And that blurs lines of responsibility. And we know that makes it much harder for voters on election day to associate what they feel has gone well or not so well with who is actually in power. And that's sort of these horizontal divisions of, of responsibility. But what I'm going to focus on tonight is the vertical divisions of responsibility as we see in the European Union. So what the European Union has established, regardless of what we want to call it, do we want to call it you know, a federation, a federal state, a confederation, something else, it doesn't matter. But I think all scholars of this and, and observers of EU politics would agree that significant powers have been transferred from national parliaments and national executives to the European Union institutions. That means that for certain policy outcomes, it is not wholly any more national governments that are responsible. It's partly or wholly the European Union institutions and the decision-making processes that take place there. And that means for this Spanish voter, she can't say, well, it's just a Spanish government, it's just Prime Minister Rajoy, I'm going to put all the blame on her, him. She realizes that it's more complex as such. But in fact, it's so complex when we look at the EU that there are several challenges facing voters. One is, of course, that these institutions that make up the EU themselves are constantly evolving, and the competences that they have are constantly evolving. You know, those of you who are interested in EU politics and EU law will know that treaties are constantly changing and the competences and so on. So that, for an ordinary voter, makes it very difficult. Secondly, most competences, of course, overlapping. It's not as simple to say, well, it's the EU's responsibility or it's the national government. In fact, this is a joint responsibility in most cases. Thirdly, and I'll get back to that because I think it's an important point, is that there is not a clearly identifiable government at the EU level. So even if we can say, well, it's probably the EU, what is the EU? Who within the EU do we then hold responsible? And finally, having these multiple levels of government, what that does is potentially provide incentives for national government to just 
try and shift the blame to the European level. So how do citizens then deal with this level of complexity? Well, we can sort of see, look, think of two extremes. So the one is that in a sort of an ideal world, attribution of responsibility would uh, correspond to the institutional reality. So each level of government would be held to account for whatever was their primary responsibility. And that should be possible, certainly to the extent that information is available about that, which of course is not always the case. So how do citizens then cope with these complexities? Well, we know quite a bit about that from the literature and social psychology and so on, which is that people really rely on what is sometimes called in-group biases or group-serving biases, namely sort of their pre-existing views of, you know, who deserves to be absolved of blame or who doesn't. So let me give you a sort of a, an example from, from Britain. Let's say I'm a strong conservative supporter and I realize that the British economy is not doing well, but I'm not going to pin the blame on David Cameron because, you know, I'm a part of his in-group. Well, what am I going to do instead? Then I might find saying, well, the economy is not doing well, but it's not his fault. It must be the EU. It must be the previous Labour government. It must be the bankers or some other group. And that's what happens a lot, especially as I mentioned, when not much information is available out there. So we have this selective attribution of responsibility. So just to show you a more uh, sort of general model of this, or illustration, which shows that this sort of direct link between policy performance and attribution of responsibility is very much moderated at conditions by what people already think about the EU, regardless of whether the institutional reality is in fact the same. And that this link between institutional divisions of responsibility and attribution of responsibility is very much conditioned about how much information people have about what's going on. So let's look at some of the evidence now. So I'm always, my students are very bored of listening to how, I'm always very keen on evidence. So I have to live up to it now. So this is from this 27,000 people survey that was conducted in 2009. And what we did in this survey was specifically to try and understand who people think are in fact, who, which level of government people think are responsible for several policy areas. So not who should be responsible, but who are in fact the main level of government dealing with different things. And what we find is that very much as we would expect when we look across these uh, four policy areas, that it's ranked kind of how we would expect. So people think that interest rates, that the EU is the, has the most responsibility compared to other policy areas. So if you look at the green and the light blue bars, that's where the EU has either so, the most responsibility or jointly with member states. And less so, slightly less so, but secondly, immigration, then economy, and finally healthcare is the one where most citizens think, well, this is really the responsibility of national governments. Now, in order to create some kind of yardstick, you know, what's the reality out there? What we did was to ask a number of um, experts so EU lawyers and EU political scientists uh, specializing in this to compare. And what we find was striking similarities between citizens and experts. And to give you an example here is the example of interest rates. So what, we, uh, what I've done here is compare the public with experts and divided them into three groups. So we have 
respondents or citizens within Eurozone countries. The dark blue is citizens within countries where um, the currency is pegged to the Eurozone, such so as Denmark. And finally, we have countries outside the Eurozone uh, where the currency is not pegged, such so as Sweden or Britain. And we find, as we would expect, that more responsibilities are assigned to the Eurozone when we are uh, inside the Eurozone and outside, and more when the currency is not pegged. And we also find similarities across the public and expert. So that's how we would expect. What about if we look at when citizens are more likely to get it right? So there's this general idea that, certainly you find that a lot in Brussels, that if people only had more information, then they could make better sense of the complex institution. And that part of the problem is that the national media doesn't pay enough attention to the EU. And we wanted to get a handle on that by analyzing at the same period as we conducted the survey, we analyzed the three major newspapers and two major news broadcasts uh, in all 27 member states for the sort of general content, but also the content on the EU. So how much did they say about the EU? To what extent did they assign responsibility to the EU and so on? And the beauty of this was that we also had questions in the survey on what sort of newspapers people read what sort of television program they watched, and how often. So we could link these two things. And therefore, we could see controlling for other things, such as people's political interest and knowledge and education and so on, whether or not the, um, the media you were exposed to, in fact, had an effect. And what we found was that for people who were exposed, so the light blue bar here are people who are high, exposed to uh, newspapers that cover the EU to a great extent, the dark blue bar, the low exposure bar, people who are exposed to newspapers that don't cover, the news, uh, don't cover the EU very much. And we find quite a significant difference between the two groups, and the, the light blue bar is shorter because they're closer to expert assignments. So they're closer to the expert opinions that I described to you before. So that means if the media cover the, well, if newspapers cover the EU more, in generally what we find is people understand the institutions better. However, interestingly, if you look up top and look at the uh, television, we did the same thing for television news, and we find no effect. So that means if you sit there and you watch your ITV news at 10 every night, and it always, they always talk about the EU, that doesn't mean that if you never watched it or you watched you know, Big Brother instead, it wouldn't make much difference. So, I mean, you might ask why is that the case? Well, one suggestion is because that what television news tend to do is very event-focused. They focus on summits and elections and things like that. That doesn't give you a lot of background information of, to understand how the European Union functions in contrast to newspapers. So let's look at how people responded to the crisis. This is part of the Eurocrisis lecture series, as Paul mentioned. And we'll start at home again and look at Britain. So this is data from 2008 to 2012 on who British citizens think are responsible for the financial crisis. And as you see, as the crisis took off in 2000, late 2008, the main blame, I mean, they had many more options than this. So these are just the three uh, most salient options, most, most mentioned options. And as the t crisis took off in 2008, what we found was that U.S. banks were seen as the main culprit. But then, if more interesting, you look here at the dark blue bar, 
which is the EU. As the financial crisis was transformed from a financial crisis to a sovereign debt crisis to a crisis of the Eurozone, people picked up on this and in fact started holding the EU increasingly responsible and it overtook the responsibility of the British government, which is quite stable across this whole period. We can also look at the question on who do you think affects the economy the most and we find a similar picture, although it's a slightly longer time period as you'll see, this is going all the way back to 2004 up to 2012. But again we see the same peak from late 2010 when the Eurozone crisis really took hold, certainly in the media and was covered a lot, that British citizens then think, well, in fact, this is... is, uh, the EU is really the, the level of government or the main actor out there that affects how our economy is doing. Now, this is not a British-only phenomenon. We can, co- we can compare across Europe. And here, we're just look, I'm just looking at, at five countries. And if, in fact, what you see here is despite the sort of bias in British media, what we do find is that the British, Britain, in fact, assign less blame to the EU for economic problems than the rest of, of these countries. Not surprisingly, perhaps, since that Britain is outside the Eurozone. We find that the French are the ones who blame the EU the most for the economic problems of these five countries, then Poland, slightly less in Germany, and the least in Spain. What's also interesting is, well, what's similar across all countries, the development. This is 2010, 2011, 2012. And in all countries, we see an increase in blaming of the EU for the country's economic problems across these years. Now, there are two sides to this story. Well, one side is, of course, that citizens probably became aware that the EU, certainly in certain countries within the Eurozone, that the EU was increasingly taking on responsibility for not only monetary policy, but to some extent also fiscal policy making in the Eurozone countries and had therefore work increasingly intervening and that might be a sort of a reflection of that. The other story, which is the one I already alluded to, was the one about selective attribution. So as people become more Eurosceptic, what happens is that they're also more likely to blame the EU simply because if they like the EU less, they'll also think it's the EU's fault. And we can see this if we split, so this is the same data, but what I've done here is to split it according to EU supporters and EU opponents. And this institutional reality for these two groups is obviously constant, but there's very different responses in terms of whether the EU is to blame. And uh, interestingly, we see that's particularly in the case in Germany, where the EU opponents are very keen to blame uh, the EU, but not so much uh, the EU supporters. We see a similar pattern if we just look over time in Britain. So the top light blue line here are the EU opponents who were just always more likely to think that the, uh, that the EU was responsible for the financial crisis compared to the supporters. But this gap widens quite a bit as we get to the crisis. Okay, so just let me summarize the answer to the first question that I've tried to provide some evidence for, namely, how do citizens assign blame to the European Union? Well, the first thing, and that might come to a surprise to some of you, to a certain extent it came as a surprise to me, knowing just how complex the EU 
is, is that despite these complexities, citizens' attribution of responsibility is not entirely random. It does reflect some institutional reality. It also, um, as the institutional reality changes, citizens also respond to it. What we find which is interesting and perhaps more sort of promising is that it also depends on how much information is available out there. So when people have more information, get more information from the, uh, from the media, they're better able to understand how institutions work. When there's higher levels of media coverage of the EU, the biases that I just showed in the last couple of slides are reduced. But of course, there's also no denying that the main story of this is really one of selective attribution, that blame is really driven by attitudes towards the EU, so if people don't like the project, they're likely to think it's to fault for whatever sort of comes people's way. Okay, so that then leads to the second question. Well, to what extent is that then the fault of governments or the media in terms of how they cover the EU? So this question of the blame game. So it's generally thought, I think it's sort of commonly held wisdom that national, national heads of state and government like to come home and say this is all the EU's fault. We also know, of course, when we look at certainly living in Britain and seeing headlines like this, that it seems that certain part of the media are quite eager to point the finger at the EU. But what if we look at this more systematically so we wanted to look at this across the period of the crisis because this is really a time where sort of a similar development hit several European uh, states, but also where there was a lot of incentive, you could say, for national governments to want to sort of point the finger at someone else. But starting with the media again, I'm going to show you just some evidence from, from this uh, large media study of all 27 member states. And what we did was to well, to look at, as I said, EU visibility, but also in other policy-related coverage to look at, well, how much was uh, the EU mentioned? And just some highlight, some, some key findings first. The first thing was that sometimes it's, it's claimed that the EU is not really present at all in the media, and that's not generally what we found. But what we did find that although the media is fairly salient, it tends to be very event-focused. So it tends to be really coverage of summits, of elections, and so on, rather than sort of more policy-related coverage about the sort of policy-making that goes on in the EU. Because policy-making um, on policies is not covered very much, not surprisingly, and this is showing uh, stories of assignment of responsibility for the economy, so looking at all stories of the economy, which was the most salient issue at the time, we look at who do they then associate it with it. So this is not even blame or credit. It doesn't have to be positive or negative. It can be entirely neutral. It's just coded in terms of who do they think, uh, who does the media portray as being involved in the decision-making on the economy in any way. And they do assign a lot of responsibility, but almost exclusively to national governments, other national actors, and less than 5% of all coverage on the economy was, was attributed to the EU. So that's came to a certain extent as a surprise to me. But a greater surprise was uh, when we looked at uh, governments. I'll come back to that now. So, What we did in order to look at systematically at governments where we took this, all the speeches 
uh, and all the press statements of prime ministers, well, prime minister, the prime ministers in Britain, Taoiseach in Ireland, and the chancellor in Germany from, from 2008 to today. So we wanted to take all of them, not just the ones where they talked about the EU. And we looked at, well, how do, do they, who do they credit and who do they blame uh, when they talk, if anyone, when they talk about the economy and the crisis. And let's start with the nice story of crediting. So not surprisingly, national governments like to credit themselves. So this will add up to more than 100 because this is, uh, they can credit more than one, um, one actor in a speech or in a press statement. And so they like to credit themselves. Uh, they also like to credit the EU and also other, which tends to be other national governments. Uh, Angela Merkel, who was the chancellor for the whole period, in fact, credits other governments and the EU as much as he credits herself. What about, and you can see even, even British prime ministers credit the EU. What about blame? Well, there was hardly any blame. We really did look for it. Um, as we allowed, you know, any sort of little mention of blame. And it just, uh, we didn't find much. We did find some in the speeches of uh, British prime ministers. David Cameron particularly liked blaming the previous Labour government. And uh, Gordon Brown used to like blaming the financial system, global financial system. Um, but in Ireland, Enda Kenny blames the previous government a little bit, but not as much as you might have thought. And he doesn't blame the EU. And Ang Angela Merkel just doesn't blame anyone. Uh, maybe it's because it's all her responsibility, so it's not credible, but she really doesn't. Um, so, I mean, you have some explanations for this, but I think it's quite interesting, and I think it's especially interesting because there's often this myth that the EU is just being used as a sort of, you know, governments come back from Brussels and then they just say, oh, it's all the EU's fault. Um, but given how the EU, the media covers the EU, where it's very much focused exactly on these governments, it is, of course, rather difficult for the governments then to turn around and say that this is all the EU's fault. So we find the media does cover the EU, but not really in terms of policy-specific coverage. And attribution of responsibility to the EU is, is very rare. So heads of government rarely blame the EU, but that doesn't mean they don't engage in, in some sort of strategy to do with, you know, they don't use the EU, for example, to diffuse responsibility. But here we found quite different narratives. So the Angela Merkel narrative was very much a we narrative. You know, we're all in this together, one big happy or less happy European family. So this diffusion of responsibility. If you look at the British Prime Minister's speeches, it was much more of a sort of us versus them. So not necessarily blaming the EU, but taking credit. So anything good that happened in the EU is sort of that's because of the sort of the British line, the British government. And whereas the German Chancellor, she hardly ever mentions her own government or Germany. The British Prime Minister always mentions Britain and the British government. So there's a, still, even though sort of when we just look at these figures, they might look sort of quantitatively quite similar, there's a, a quite significant qualitative difference in how the EU is talked about. And that then raises the final question of tonight, which is, which is the one of, well, how do citizens navigate these sort of very different national 
public spheres when it comes to holding the EU to account. So going back to this notion of accountability and what that means. So as I said in the beginning, accountability in the sort of theories of democracy is often looked at as one that allows citizens to hold governments to account by punishing and rewarding them. In a multi-level system, it means that each level, is hold, held to, each level of government is held to account for the policies that they are responsible for. As I also mentioned, we know that when there's greater clarity of responsibility, and especially when citizens can easily identify a cohesive government that they can, they can hold to account, you find more of this sort of performance voting in elections. So what I will do now is to try to look at to what extent that model works in the European Union. But first, in order to provide some sort of benchmark of comparison, we can see how it works in the, in the 27 EU member states. So if we look at to what extent voters, um, in fact, vote on the basis of their economic evaluations when they vote in national elections, or what determines the support for the incumbent. And so there's quite a lot going on here, so let me just walk you through it. So first, these are all 27 member states sort of pulled together, but divided into three types of systems. So high clarity systems like Britain, where we have a clear, a clear uh, well, generally have sort of a one-party majority government, not at the moment, but certainly a very strong government in parliament, not a lot of checks and balances. Medium clarity systems where you might have coalition governments with, um, with a dominant partner, like in Britain at the moment, and low clarity system where there's very fragmented government. Then the size of the bars is the degree to which economic evaluations impact on support for the incumbent. So a high bar means there's a lot of effect of performance evaluations on how much you support the incumbent. The dark blue bars are for these citizens who think this level of government, the national level of government, is really primarily responsible for the economy. The light blue bars are for those who think that the national level of government is less responsible. So it's very much how we would expect. In high clarity systems, for citizens who think national level of government is responsible, the economy matters a lot in whether they support the incumbent. In systems where you have, it's very hard to identify who's in charge, we find that that's not so much the case. Now I show you that because I want you then to contrast with what goes on in the EU. And the EU looks a bit more like this than up here. Now, um, where would we go to look for accountability in the EU? Well, we turn to the directly elected institution, the only directly elected institution of the European Union, namely the European Parliament. And of course, the European Parliament has increased its powers through successive treaty reforms, partly because of a desire to create more democratic legitimacy and accountability in the EU. So, what, we do, what, I, what I do in the next slide is to show to what extent then does that sort of accountability argument work in terms of does it matter for citizens who, um, does it matter when they vote whether or not the economy, whether or not they think the economy is doing well or not so well in the same way as it does in national elections. So we look at whether or not that matters for the support for the major party, the European People's Party. But we can do the same for other parties and find the same results. So really what this shows is it doesn't matter. 
There's no significant effect of economic evaluations on vote choices in the European Parliament. And more significantly, perhaps, is there's no difference for the people who think the EU is not responsible at all and those who think the EU is wholly responsible for the economy. So even if you think, well, it's all the EU's fault, it still doesn't matter who you vote for. Well, you will probably tell me, well, of course it doesn't, because how would I vote any differently? So the thing is, of course, about the European Parliament... There's no clear government that you can vote in or out when you go and cast your ballot, so you vote on a different basis. Now, does that mean that it doesn't really matter at all how responsibility is attributed? And no, it doesn't. It does matter, but not so much at the ballot box. The way in which it matters is it translates more generally into the trust in the EU as a whole institution or as a project and the legitimacy of the EU. So what I look at now is specifically a trust in the EU. And what we can see here is that for people who think the EU is responsible for the dark blue bar, who thinks the EU is responsible for the economy, that has a far larger effect. Their evaluations of the economy has a far larger effect on trust in the European institutions than for those who don't think the EU is responsible. So in other words, while... Poor performance of the EU, as we might say, that's what we're seeing at the moment. Poor performance of the EU doesn't translate into the ballot box as such, but it does translate into the perception and evaluations of the European Union as a whole, and therefore also indirectly into the legitimacy of the European Union as a whole. So just let me summarize that. There's no evidence that citizens punish or reward MEPs for performance that the EU is deemed to be responsible for. It's not surprising because the model of accountability that we know really depends on there being an identifiable government which doesn't exist in the European Parliament that voters can punish or reward. And it also requires a much stronger and certainly clearer from a citizen's perspective, might be clear to us, but from a citizen's perspective, link between the European Parliament and an EU executive such as the Commission. However, what happens instead is that when citizens blame the EU for poor performance, it leads to lower levels of trust in the EU institutions. So what are the sort of more general implications of this as I see it? Well, the first implication is that this increase in the European Parliament's power, I've no doubt it has many positive effects on the quality of EU legislation and on the scrutiny of the EU executive but it hasn't provided an electoral mechanism of accountability, in my view. And I think that's what the evidence here says. And that has implications not only for democracy in the EU, but also democracy at the national level. Because, of course, what has happened is that power has been transferred away from national parliaments and away from national executives to the European Union level, but without a similar replacement mechanism of accountability. It also worryingly has consequences for legitimacy of the EU. As I showed, what happens is that when people then think that the EU performs poorly, it translates into sort of what we might call overall regime support. So if I'm unhappy with the current situation in Britain, that might mean that I'm less likely to vote for the Conservatives or the Liberal Democrats at the next election. But it doesn't mean that I necessarily have less trust in the Westminster model or in British democracy as such. 
but there is no, there's not that mechanism that you can hold a specific individual or government to account in the EU. And finally, returning to the issue of the crisis, what, what has the crisis done in all of that? Well, the positive side of the crisis, if you can talk about that, is that it's provided a lot more information about the EU. And what we've seen is that more information also makes citizens better able to assign responsibility. However, it hasn't, still hasn't provided a mechanism then for these citizens to hold anyone to account for what they understand to be the EU's fault. Something else that means that the problem of legitimacy and democracy has become a lot greater in the crisis is that, of course, what the European responses, these responses might have been very sensible, but what they've done is, of course, to increase the, Euro, the EU's control over fiscal policy making, especially of certain member states. And what has that, that has done is that that has disabled, in a sense, the democratic accountability mechanisms in these member states, especially member states that are where austerity measures are imposed and so on. So the governments will put their hands up and say, we need to do this. So citizens in these member states will say, well, what can we do then? We can't hold anyone to account for that. So you might say, well, they can hold their governments to account. That's what they're there for. The governments are the ones we see on the television every day when we hear about the EU. But there are several problems with that. First of all, as we saw, citizens are very well aware that it's not only their own national governments who are to blame for what's going on. So it's not enough simply to hold them to account. Secondly, when we think about the measures that are taken, and especially the measures that are taken now, a lot of them have the kind of discretionary nature that they're imposed on certain member states in particular, so the ones who are in need of credit from the EU. And therefore, what would in fact be happening is we're, if we're relying solely on, on the council and that channel of legitimacy is that it's German voters and Finnish voters and Danish voters who have to impose sacrifices on Portuguese and Greek and Spanish voters. So I think it calls for an urgency of creating a more a European mechanism of the accountability this particular crisis. So um, that brings me to the slightly more, well, you might have think this is all very speculative already, but the even more speculative part of the talk, namely looking at some possible solution to this accountability deficit that I've identified. So the first is the greater institutional clarity. So as we've seen, it's a complex system. It poses many challenges to citizens. And really, if we can ensure that there are clear divisions of competences and perhaps that it's not a system in constant flux, it would make it easier for citizens, certainly, to navigate this multi-level multi system of competences and of responsibilities. Secondly, and I think more importantly, is a need for greater government clarity in the European Union. So if we think of accountability, as I already said, it really relies on the idea that there is someone who is responsible and someone who can provide an, an alternative. Yeah, that's what the heart of democracy is about. And therefore, establishing a system where there's more government opposition politics, for example, in the European Parliament, would be one way of achieving that. That could be done either 
more modestly, I, I think, by having a stronger link by, between the parliamentary majority and the Commission, or more ambitiously, and perhaps more attractively, but I can say that because I'm just a political scientist, a directly elected Commission that could clearly be held to account. So there's a lot of research showing that U.S. voters find it quite easy, even though it's the U.S. system is very complex, to know who to hold to account because they just blame the president. So they feel that there's someone who's accountable. Uh, finally, greater transparency to make it more difficult for national politicians to refuse blame or claim credit, although what I think I've showed is, in fact, that it's not as great of a problem as we might think it is, although we still have, of course, very different narratives across European countries. So let me give you, to underline these challenges, a quote from the Future of Europe group of EU foreign ministers, a very recent report on the future of Europe. So a fundamental deepening of the EMU must go hand in hand with greater democratic legitimacy. Wherever new competences are created at the European level or closer coordination of national policies established, full democratic control has to be ensured. So this idea of full democratic control is not only one that is voiced at the moment by foreign ministers. We hear it from the president of the council, the president of the commission, or national heads of state and government. But let me just leave you with two thoughts on that. The first is that I think it's somehow curious that we have all these European leaders talking about democratic control, and at the same time, these same European leaders are instituting quite substantial reforms that, in, term, in response to the euro crisis, that is signaling that democratically elected parliaments and governments cannot be trusted when it comes to governing the euro. Secondly, I'm not sure what full democratic control means, but often, if we look in the past, in Eurospeak, what it has meant has been greater legislative powers to the European Parliament. And I think what I've tried to show you today is that that in and of itself is not enough to create democratic accountability in the EU. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for this uh, brilliant talk, uh, an insightful talk about uh, such a complex material. And I had two conclusions from your talk. One has to do with the difference between political science and economics. Um, when I was listening to you, I was struck by the fact that what you are studying is so much more difficult than what economists are, are analyzing. Um, political science is just more complex than economics, and that's why it attracts smarter people than uh, in economics. That's one um, conclusion that I would like to draw. The other one has to do with uh, gender differences. You, you showed us uh, um, this blame game between leaders, uh, European leaders, and um, I'm, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization, if you allow me. I think we had four observations, right? Uh, and there was one, one female leader in that, in that sample. And, and it struck me that female leaders are so much nicer than male leaders. They, um, they don't blame anybody. And when they take credit, 
they are nice enough to also involve others in the credits they, they, they give. So here um, is my conclusion about uh, um, your, your talk. Um, but uh, this being done, let me now turn over to the, the audience, and I would uh, like to invite you to ask questions, make comments, try to be brief. The way we will proceed is that uh, I will take uh, three questions and then hand over to Sarah to, to reply to them. So who would like to start? Please give also your name. John Palmer. Um, thank you very much for that talk, and um, I was very relieved at your conclusions because I wasn't clear from the evidence as it was emerging where you'd get to, but I, I entirely agree. I would just add a couple of points. Um, the problem of popular disengagement from democratic politics is also a dimension in this, not just at the European level, but there is a kind of disengagement effect that we can see uh, throughout many of the countries of, of the advanced industrialized world. And uh, part of that appears to be a sense that there aren't alternatives that are sufficiently tangible and clear that can engage the commitment of voters one way or the other. And... Uh, Maybe globalization has something to do with this fact. But at a European level, there is certainly space for serious choices. And I think that one of the... It would be interesting to see a study, maybe one day uh, you and your colleagues might look at it, uh, to, to test the hypothesis that if there were serious political choices available at the European level, canvassed for and campaigned for by parties at a European level, that this would engage voters and citizens much more actively in the European process. Um, yes, it's uh, Alexandre. And um, yeah, quite uh, interested by the uh, two, sort of two aspects of uh, your presentation. The first one, if we uh, believe in what Moravchik said, and uh, he, he's, uh, he defends intergovernmentalism, and he speaks about um, the fact that the very beginning of the uh, EU, uh, I mean the European community, and even before that, still an uh, iron community, um, still an coal community, uh, he says that really the, the governments were looking for uh, delegating sort of economical powers transfer at international level so that there wouldn't be any sort of democratic accountability. So from your presentation, I believe that you <laughs> sort of defend Moravchik point of view. And I'm interested to know if, you're, uh, if I'm mistaken or not. But the second point that was really interesting, I think, in what, what you said is when you uh, defended the fact that uh, we need more um, democracy at European Parliament level and the sort of stronger clarity between uh, sort of pro-commission and opposition at European Parliament level. And I would be very interested to know, or to, to know your point regarding how the European Parliament managed to increase step by step, uh, treaty after treaty, his sort of uh, 
even even though they're still limited, but how the European Parliament managed to have more uh, sort of legislative power. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Um, Nick Norvell, I'm a consultant with the EU, um, mainly working on um, Europaid uh, projects around the, around the, around the world. Um, I just, just wonder whether the, one of the um, sources of confusion, perhaps, with the um, uh, electorate in, within the EU is, is what the EU's mission and vision is, is, really is. You know, and I think it's um, perhaps related to the whole subject of, um, of, of forming the budget, where people are perhaps uh, not entirely sure in relation to things like CAP and uh, structural funds, cohesion funds, in, in, exactly in, in terms of what the budget should be spent on. Perhaps if that were better explained to, to, the, to the electorate, then the accountability deficit would be addressed. Thank, thank you so much for these. Thank you so much for these excellent uh, questions. Starting with your question, Don Palmer. Um, I mean, I, I entirely agree with you that lack of choice and, and lack of alternatives is a source of disengagement. I think we see it perhaps most clearly at the moment in Greece, where people are turning very much to the extremes, partly because I think people, a lot of people feel that they have no real choice in terms of the mainstream, that their hands are so tight and then tied. Your question is, what would happen if there were more serious choices at the European level? So obviously in terms of a research project, it's an excellent one, but quite hard in that you know, we kind of need to have it first to be able to study it. However, there is evidence very much supporting your intuition. Because if we look, we have variation, of course, in European Parliament elections across very different contexts. And what we find is that in the context where there's more party debate, more talk about it, more parties offer more different options and real European options are debated, and that does happen outside Britain, uh, we do find that people vote much more on European issues in these European Parliament elections. So there is some evidence that, that your intuition is right. And to, uh, to Alexander, so did government just transfer responsibility to reduce accountability? I think when I read Maratic, that wasn't the only reason why they decided to integrate. Um, but, I mean, of course, I think what we generally see is that, and that was partly what I implied, tried to be a bit controversial at the end, that governments might like to talk about democracy, but when it comes to it, they it's often easier to take decisions which are not necessary, where they're not held to account. And it's not surprising, of course, that, um, that different initiatives in terms of sort of transparency and, and strengthening have often been resisted. Yet, as you also point out, of course, the European Parliament has increased its powers of scrutiny and its legislative powers very significantly over the last four decades. And it's interesting that whereas you can explain the literature can quite easily explain all sort of other institutional developments in the EU with sort of standard rational choice models of why executive does, you know, what are the advantages of delegating power. When it comes to the European Parliament, these models don't apply well. And what we tend to believe is therefore what, that really this argument of legitimacy and democracy and accountability has been very powerful 
when it comes to explaining why the European Parliament has been able to expand in power the way it has. So there's been this realization that if we're going to have these transfers of power, we need to also create something at the European level that creates more legitimacy. And then finally, to uh, Noble's question on whether there's confusion about what is the, the EU's mission is, and related to issues such as the budget and so on. Well, I think you know, there's a lot of confusion about what the EU's mission is to the extent that the EU has a one coherent mission. I mean, of course, there was the, you know, the mission from the outset, which is certainly a very laudable one about peace and prosperity, and that continues to be, I think, a very powerful argument, but of course not one that emerges very strongly when you get into the nitty-gritty of of budget details. And I think a key element here is that who is it who is going to communicate that vision? Well, it's national politicians who communicate whatever vision they see fit, and of course what their main incentives are to is their own sort of electoral benefits and so on. And that means while they don't necessarily blame the EU, uh, and they also credit the EU, I guess, especially if they're women, Uh, you're right, an N of three is not enough to exclude the gender factor, Um, then then they don't necessarily have the sort of big incentives to sort of talk the European way. And and Paul would be able to say more about that as a Belgian, but I always felt that a key problem of the EU was it doesn't have a sort of European actor. So Belgium, you know, you have your king, but again, I mean, in the EU, there's no one sort of speaking... For the EU. I mean, I guess that's Barroso, but he doesn't get a lot of talk time. So that's partly also related to sort of my last point about creating a government. It would also be so there would be some actors that actually would speak not as Chancellor of Germany or as Prime Minister of Britain, but as President of Europe. And they would have to make that case. You know, Belgium has chocolate and beer and lately good football players. So that may also make a distinction and difference with the EU. The next round, yeah. Um, Anne Corbett. Um, You had the word citizens in your title. You've told us a lot about voters. I just wonder whether there was something more you could sort of exploit in terms of citizenship as a kind of lived experience and engagement in Europe. Um, We see it obviously through students having the chance to move around, but uh, that's a minority. And I just wondered whether um, any of your evidence, you know, told you a bit more about um, uh, other people in a less elite position. Um, so that, you know, to take on from your... Thank you. Um, Julia Pastorella, PhD student at the European Institute here at the LSE. Um, to my mind, what the crisis has shown, um, amongst other things, is that at European level, some gov- all governments are equal, but some governments are more equal than others. So my question was whether in your data you found any patterns that show that citizens not only look at you know, clarity of responsibility, but also have a more realist perspective on attribution of blame in the sense that they know who has the power, and therefore it's not just 
responsibility that matters, but it's also the division of powers. And suppose, you know, Greek, um, Greeks or Spanish voters might hold the EU more accountable because they know that the government hasn't really got much power in, in, say, the council or whatever. Whether there's any correlation between the power of the leaders and not only their role um, as leaders. Thank you, Valtraud Shekli from the European Institute. So when you look at this attribution of, of uh, responsibility and all that accountability, you, you treat the EU a little bit like a level of governance, right? Like almost a crypto federal system. Now, if one thinks about the EU more, as I tend to do, as a fourth branch of government, as Majoni with the regulatory polity called it, the fourth branch that does transnational economic regulation primarily, uh, then you wouldn't be so worried about that um, it is not directly accountable and that it isn't, uh, you know, uh, is blamed a lot or not or not trusted. Because you say it's in the nature of what it does. We have put that into a transnational body because we feel national democracies cannot uphold things of which they think they are right and good, like uh, asylum rights and, and free trade. So we have to give that pass, and so they will always be blamed because it's exactly why their government thought they cannot uphold the principle. What worries me more is the reason, and I come then to the crisis, is at the moment one seems to have, do you have from your research any handle on the question that people don't blame so much the EU, but meaning other countries, particular countries, you know, the north-south divide that's now uh, opening up and when people blame the EU they mean we are there with some countries that shouldn't be in there. Uh, that I think is a novel uh, thing in this whole crisis that is very worrying. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for, for these questions. So Anne, uh, Sid, uh, so uh, I'm sorry if I mentioned voters a lot. It's only actually in the last two slides I think I showed that it was about voters. Everything else was really about citizens as a whole. It's probably a sort of a problem that I have because I do a lot of electoral research. So I tend to talk about everyone as, as, uh, as voters, even though most European citizens are, of course, not European voters when it comes to European Parliament elections, as we know. Um, but your more substantive question in terms of citizenship as a lived experience, um, do I have a, a, does this research provide a lot of insights into it? Well, I'm not this specifically, but of course there is excellent research on it by you know, members of the audience that have shown that these, there are of course a lot of people in this room, myself inclusive, who very much live the European experience. But what we find is that of course this is very much the elite. It's a very small segment of the population and therefore even if these the people who do those of us who are part of that European elite tend to know more about the EU tend to like the EU more we're less likely to blame it and so on and we find all these things that is a very small and insignificant group of people we might be more likely to be opinion leaders but we're still a very small group so these sort of programs and this sort of living as a citizen is not for the majority of people the majority of people live in their own, you know, national political context and their own lives and care not very much generally about the EU. 
Um, and to Julia's question, uh, which is also a very, uh, very good question about, um, well, I guess what you're partly saying is if citizens were more realist, as you say, we would find the Greek being less likely to attribute responsibility to the EU as perhaps the Germans. Although the Germans might say it's still the EU, it's just we're just calling the shots in the EU. Um, actually, we did try and model it with things like size, council votes, things like that. And it didn't have any effect. In other words, it doesn't seem that there's any difference between people in small member states and large member states, people who have a lot of votes in the people in countries with a lot of votes in council or people who are in credit estates or in debt estates. That might then tell you, well, that means that people are not very realistic. And maybe also partly because, of course, national governments don't particularly like coming back and saying, well, in fact, we have no power uh, when we go to Brussels. And then uh, finally to Baltra's questions, do I treat, I mean, I treat the EU as a level of government as in a federal system? Well, Yes, <laughs> you're right in that. But should I do that? Should I not? Is it not more realistic to treat it as a fourth branch of government? Um, I think increasingly not. I think increasingly what we're saying that sort of Mayonis claim that what the EU is is a regulatory state. And so we don't have to worry about democracy and accountability. It's increasingly not true. And I think the sort of recent responses and when you read the fiscal compact and the six-pack regulation with the sort of powers that potentially the EU can have over, what I see is at the very core of representative democracy and what we vote about national elections, sort of do we want austerity, do we want more stimulation of the economy, and if the commission can go in and have discretionary power to decide on these sort of issues, then I think this is going far beyond the sort of regulatory state. Now, uh, to your other question on do we see not just the blame of the EU, but also of other countries. Uh, so there weren't questions specifically on, on that in, in, in the survey that I reported, but I have done some work on it with other data, and we do find increasingly, when we look at survey data, a sort of division in Europe between the north, what, what we might call the north and the south, and I'll include the Irish in the south. And I think that's also quite worrying, and there's very different preference patterns in the north and the south. What we find sort of to be sort of very, you know, to just sort of sketch it for you in the north, what we find is that people generally want more integration but of a smaller club. So they don't really want to pay and so on. Do they, does that mean they blame others? Well, the Eurobarometer used to have questions on what do you think about other nations and listed at home, but it caused so much controversy. The Slovenians were always like last, and you know, do you trust other Europeans? And they were very upset, so that was taken out. But so we can't get at that specifically, you know, do, do the Germans blame the Greek? I mean, in certain in sort of cross-national service, but we can get at is this, this sort of increasing division of preferences that we see across, uh, and I think that is a serious issue for Okay. Any more questions? Yes. Let's make it the last round. Thank you. Uh, Sean from Ireland. Um, well, I don't have access to David Cameron or an MEP, but I have access to my local politician. And I just want to know how many people here 
ever goes to a local politician and has it out with him of what's going on. The crisis has gone on since 2008, and it was just too much borrowing going on. And where was the regulators? There was a lot of deregulation going on in the financial, in the financial markets. And like, who are the people who push these through? And also, a lot of people have lost their jobs in Europe because a lot of factories have closed and gone to China. Why are we importing from China? Like, everybody's going to go out and buy goods for Christmas. I'm going to think for a moment, that's made in China, I won't buy it. I'll buy it something made in Europe. Isn't it time that Europe close ranks and start making goods here ourselves and stop importing mass from China? If you go down Oxford Street, will you find anything made in the UK? It's pretty hard. So, why don't we, what does what the Europe close ranks and, um, you know, trade all with the Europe? Because we are the market for China. We don't need to be. We need to be the market for ourselves. We need to create jobs and we have money to spend. Thank you. Michael Colling, University of Kent. I've got a question, uh, what I hope is a fairly simple and concrete question about one of the uh, results that I found one of the more surprising results in your data today, and that was that the media seems to blame um, the EU less than I at least expected and, and seems to blame the national governments much more. Um, that was sort of contrary to my, my expectation. Um, first, I, I was wondering whether there may be a bias in the data just because the media writes about local governments much more than about the EU because, of course, because there is a much more direct involvement in the election of the governments, there's a greater interest to write about them and that the um, motivation for writing is not to write about who is responsible for the economic crisis but write about what is our government doing and so there is more being written. So I'm wondering whether you were able to compensate for just the different volume in writing that was going on. And then I would like maybe um, to hear your comments of whether you also found this um, result surprising and maybe contrary to your expectations and if you did what would you attribute it to? I have a question upstairs there. elaborate on what you think the solution in terms of structural changes are on the European level. You've mentioned a co competence or competence catalog perhaps, but um, we've, we've heard Majon and Moravchik, would you tend to stand more with the federal point that we should have an elected commission president, for example? Thank you. Okay. Maybe I'll take one last question there. Hi, my name is Ben. Um, I'm interested actually on your thoughts on the voting trends in the UK um, with the rising popularity of the anti-EU UKIP. And is it, firstly, is there a realistic chance of the UK leaving the EU in some way? 
And if so, how will that affect the survival of the European Union? Would that lead to other countries questioning their, uh, whether they should stay or leave? Thank you so much for these um, questions. Uh, again, a very challenging set of questions. Um, Sean, thank you very much for your question. I'm afraid some of it is a little bit outside my area of expertise. Um, should the EU close ranks? I mean, to a certain extent it does, of course, but generally I think that economists and Paul will tell you would agree that trade is a good thing, trade inside the EU and trade outside, and that ultimately you know, we all benefit from that in terms of growth and employment in the long run. But again, I'm not going to say that I'm the expert of that. Uh, Michael, in terms of um, the surprising result of that the EU is blamed less by the media and whether that's about the volume. Of course, in that particular graph I showed there, I mean, you're entirely right that um, part of the reason that the EU is, is assigned less responsibility by the media is just because the EU is talked less about. But one thing that was quite interesting um, that I didn't show, but I mentioned, is that the EU is actually talked quite a lot about in general. It's not that, no, they, but not so much when it comes to uh, policy-related issues such as the economy. So it's not that the EU is entirely ignored, but that when it comes to talking policies, there's really a focus on national governments. And I think another surprising result that I didn't show, but which just confirms that finding that we both, I think, found surprising, is about the tone. And I think, so we also coded the tone of each article on the EU in terms of positive, negative, and neutral. And of course, living in Britain, I thought that this would be, uh, certainly in certain countries, you know, quite polarized. You'd get a lot of negative coverage of the EU and maybe a lot of positive coverage, but there would certainly be a lot of variation. And almost all coverage is entirely neutral on the EU. So you just find, actually, I mean, so the Sun and the Daily Mail and so on is really an outlier when you look at a European level, European-wide level. Um, Robert, so... Solutions. So I try to, uh, you know, try and shy away from offering big solutions. But if you're going to force me to go out on a limb, you know, would I then? I think, from the perspective of European voters, I would favour something more radical than what is currently on the cards, which is all the European parties are going to nominate a president from each party in the next 2014 European Parliament elections, and then the idea is that that's somehow going to generate a lot of debate. I mean, I think it's a good idea, but I'm a bit sceptical about how much difference it's going to make. So if we think about the media and voters and what's going to grab the media's attention and make it salient, something like a directly elected president would be more likely to do that. It would also be fun to study, of course. And so sort of my crazy vision, and I'm not a politician, so I can just sit there and say, say these things and it has no implications, is something like you know, US-style primaries and a directly elected president that would actually create a debate and that had real sort of European alternatives and that people felt and were. And the media would then surely cover it because they love that kind of thing, personality politics. I mean, that's why they love the Euro crisis at the moment in terms of coverage because it's like Angela versus, you know, someone else. So, so that would create the coverage that I don't think even a 
all the two major party groups nominate someone, you know, so no one has ever heard of will do. So, so that's my sort of, um, that's the sort of radical solution if you want one. But now, finally, um, the question in the UK, which also leads back to to Peter Sutherland's introductory remarks. So, is it realistic that Britain is going to leave the EU? And is that detrimental to Europe? Well, first, is it realistic? Now, in my previous life or in my previous study, I studied referendums. And I would say that I think it's very realistic that if it comes to a referendum, that Britain would leave the EU. I think that because when you look at the polls as compared to any other country in the EU, there's a very hard core of opposition in Britain to the EU. If you look at the elites, they're much more split on the EU than in any other European countries. And of course, even Ireland, which is very pro-European, has had no votes. And there's not really been anyone in Britain, even those who are supposedly in favor of membership, who speak the European cause. Of course, it makes perfect sense not to, because if you want to win national elections, which is what British politicians do, then you know that you're very far from the sort of ordinary British person preferences if you come up with a very pro-European message. So either you don't talk about it or you try and talk about it in a Eurosceptic way. So I think what would happen in a referendum that even though all the three major parties, I mean, the first thing is all the three major parties have in fact pledged that they are in favor of a referendum. So that means even if they aren't really, it might well, well happen. And if it does happen, I think there would be quite serious splits in the party, even though I guess all three major parties are in favor of membership. Not necessarily membership as we have it now, but membership. And if it did came to a yes-no, I think there is a very realistic likelihood that Britain would leave. And I think certainly with the crisis we have at the moment, it just makes it more likely. Because what would make Britain stay in the EU, that would be, I think, mainly, certainly not some attachment to some beautiful European project. It would be economic self-interest thinking, God, it's probably worse if we leave. And right now it doesn't really look worse outside, is my take on this. But referendums is, are hugely unpredictable, so people don't have very firm views. So what would happen is that a lot will depend on the campaign, and a lot will depend on these last, you know, so it's not sort of something you can necessarily say five years in advance, but certainly would the EU survive? I think if the EU can survive this Euro crisis, it can also survive Britain leaving. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Um, thank you for guiding us through this complex um, interface of politics, also economics, rational choice, and emotions. Um, and it strikes me that maybe we should start collaborating. Um, you know, when, when I think about the crisis in the Eurozone, I tend to look for technical solutions, and, and for sure you can find technical solutions. But uh, what I found out uh, listening to you is that, uh, well, at some point, you have to go into the politics and the, and the, and the, the political um, dimension of all this, and, and more in particular, um, the transfer of sovereignty, 
and, and democratic institutions that, um, in which all these things must be embedded. And, and I think uh, it would be extremely illuminating if economists were listening more to, to people like you. Thank you very much for this evening.